Chapter 13 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 13 I don't own an alarm clock. It isn't down at Uncle Sam Panansky's keeping my forty-five company. I just don't own one. Never have. When I go to bed, I tell myself what time to wake up the next morning, and give or take five minutes, there I am. The morning after my visit to Castell, still dripping cold shower water and pulling on the day's first cigarette, I called Sally and woke her. "'How are you with money?' I asked. "'Wonderful,' she said sleepily. "'You'd be surprised.' There was a pause that must have been a yawn. "'Are you asking me to marry you?' "'I'm asking how you're fixed for money.' "'Do you mean, do I have any?' "'Yes, sweetheart.' "'All I have is... Did you call me sweetheart, darling?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, that's nice.' Her voice was smiling. "'You should wake me every morning, Timothy. Go on, tell me some more.' "'Sweetheart,' I said, "'have you got any money?' "'I told you,' she answered. "'All I have is what he gave me. Castell, I'd rather borrow a C&I dog and beg nickels on Broadway than touch any of it.' "'Fine.' I've got some here that's comparatively clean. I'll see you in half an hour. I picked out my blue worsted, a white shirt, a dark red tie, blue socks, and my black, severe-looking shoes. I wasn't being fastidious. I was dressed in the only presentable clothes I owned for my visit back downtown at the Oceanic Building this morning. Then I took a quick breakfast and went over to Sally's with a hundred dollars. Jean had already left when I arrived, and Sally greeted me at the door, looking like a piece of sunlight that had chipped off. For the next hour, I told her I had work to do, and she kept agreeing with me and pouring coffee and saying things like, The way I'm walking around here, practically in a nightgown, you'd think I was on my honeymoon, <laughs> wouldn't you, Timothy? But I left, and when I did, things had come to a pretty pass between us. So pretty that I had forgotten all about Rocky Castell until I was entering an elevator in the lobby of the Oceanic Building. The prim, flat-chested thing at the desk told me it was not only impossible, but unthinkable to see Mr. Forbes without an appointment. "'Call him,' I said. And from the look of horror in her eyes, you'd think I was something that had crawled out of the wall and was waving my antenna at her. "'Call Mr. Forbes?' I reached over, picked up the phone, and spoke the sacred name into it as the receptionist began a silent, face-contorting swoon against the desk. "'Mary,' I said to Forbes' secretary. Timothy Dane, I'm in the reception room, and I'd like to speak to the old man right away. Fine. Will you tell that to the watchdog out here before she chokes on her own indignation? I walked on through toward the Citadel. Huntington's ex-office, or vice versa, looked the same as it had the afternoon before. The dark-haired girl had her back to me, and she was taking dictation again. Except, and I almost tripped over my black shoes, the man dictating to her was Jocko Robinson. Aye. How us private slobs were getting up in the world. And fast. Very fast. I stood in the doorway and looked in at him. He was studying a paper as though it was all he had ever done in his life, and I had to keep staring to convince myself that this was the same Jocko who had crawled with me on his belly through the slime of the sewer under State Street, looking for $300,000 worth of uncut diamonds. He lifted his eyes from the paper, and there was nothing in them to show how surprised he should have been to see me. "'What do you want?' He greeted me, and I guessed he had forgotten all about that sewer crawling, among other things. The girl with the shoulder-length hair, slim waist, and long slender legs, turned around in her low-set stenographer's chair and gazed up at me out of languid black eyes that had no place in a business office. And I knew now why she had been holding Huntington's attention when I looked in yesterday. 
She had left more of her prominent chest out in the open than was enclosed, and straining hard beneath the delicate-looking material of her blouse. We surveyed each other silently, and for some reason there was an electric hostility between us. Why does that happen? Is it chemical, or is it the same thing that short-circuits dogs and cats on first sight? I watched her warily out of the corner of my eyes, though I expected her to spring at my throat, and answered Jocko Robinson's question. "'What the hell's it to you what I want?' I said. "'Because,' Jocko snapped, "'it happens to be my business, Dane. I thought I'd told you how things should be between you and this company.' "'You told me,' I answered. "'But you forgot to mention the fire that somebody was starting while you were assuring me that everything was settled up here.' "'What do you mean I forgot to mention it?' "'I guess it slipped your mind, Jocko. Hell, you're such a busy little beaver these days, you can't be expected to remember every little warehouse that's burning to the goddamn ground.' He was around the desk and pointing his little terrier's face into mine. His eyes were blazing behind the glasses. "'What do you think you're saying, Dane? What do you mean by a crack like that?' I backed off from the little fireball. I didn't want to get singed. The man, after all, had been practically a boss of mine at the Pioneer Agency and ex-bosses leave their mark no matter where your different trails lead. Well, what did you mean? His voice could have split an iceberg in two, though it wasn't even loud enough to carry into the hall beyond the office. I looked away from his furious face and found the peep-show brunette smiling at me in the unfriendly way I thought she would. I'll tell you what I mean, I said, when I'm through with the guy that still owns this place. And what does that crack mean? Still owns this place. You figure it out. I said. But I was halfway out of his office by then. Amazing. I sass Rocky Castell and practically run away from Jocko Robinson, a guy who'd give me about as much trouble in a fight as your Aunt Matilda. I turned to see him pounding down the hall after me in the direction of Forbes' office. I stopped and faced him. Where are you going, Jocko? I asked. I'm going to see Mr. Forbes. Where are you going? You know damn well that's where I'm going. What are you sticking your nose into it for? There's two things you'd better get straight right away, Dane. The first is that you're not wanted at Oceanic by anybody. The second is that I'm personally going to see to it that you don't disrupt the operations up here. Now, if you've wrangled an appointment to see Mr. Forbes, and I don't see how you have, then I'm going in with you. What the hell has happened to you, Jocko? Did you really get married? For a moment the sharpness left his eyes and I thought his shoulders fell in an, an inaudible sigh. But I must have been wrong. Time's changed, Dane he snapped. Someday, if you live long enough, you'll understand that. Times change and people change. I'm not the fool I was when I was risking my life seven days a week in Chicago for forty dollars. Plus expenses, I reminded him. Expenses? Your idea of expenses is a fifteen-minute lunch in a hamburger joint. A taxi instead of a trolley car. You don't know what expenses are, Dane. If you're going inside, I said quietly, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. But unless you want a punch in your ugly little kisser, you'd better get in there quick. Those days right after the war were good, and I wasn't going to listen to the guy who had shared them with me run them down. Jocko knew what I meant. Without another word, he swept by me in the hall and opened the door that led into the anteroom where Forbes' secretary, Mary, held forth with the microphone and listening equipment. I understand, Jocko said, that Dane here has an appointment to see Mr. Forbes. Mary looked at both of us, blinking her eyes in confusion. Well, she began, I don't know whether you'd call it an appointment. Jocko spun on me. I thought so. What is this, Dane? More strong-arming? 
Will Mr. Forbes see me? I asked Mary, ignoring him. Should he? She asked, a thin smile on her strong, kindly-looking face. Yes, I said. He should. She looked at Jocko for verification. Maybe he should, he said. Maybe we can clear up Dane's business in about three brief minutes. Mary picked up the little hand mic and adjusted the earphones over her gray hair. It looked out of place, but at the same time she looked capable of doing it. Mr. Robinson is here to see you, Mary said into the mic. The private detective, Mr. Dane, is with him. As she said my name, she reached beneath her desk and pressed a button. That opened the door to Forbes' office, and the two of us went in. The timid little man, looking even more cowed and shy than I remembered from yesterday, sat behind the huge desk that swallowed him. I said hello, and he just continued to gaze at me. It was one of the saddest and most frightened faces I've ever looked into. Not terrified, but cowed. I said, I know that by your instructions I'm not supposed to be investigating the business of your warehouse, or the fire, or Mr. Huntington's death. No one seemed inclined to answer me, so I spoke again. I came up here this morning to find out if those instructions still hold. Don't ask me why I was so formal. Maybe it was Forbes who kept looking up at me like a cocker spaniel that's just been smacked across his rear end with a newspaper. Still, nobody talked to me. If that's the way you want it, Mr. Forbes, I said, then I'm going to return the retainer you gave me yesterday and consider myself relieved of all obligations to this company. That means, I added, that I'll feel free to sell my services to anyone that wants to buy them. Who, asked Jocko as I expected somebody would, would want to buy your services? Maybe, I replied, talking to the old man and not Jocko. I used the wrong word when I said buy. I meant I think I would turn over my report to the authorities. What report? asked Jocko. What authorities? I gave him what should have been a dirty look, but he returned it blandly. I turned to Forbes to answer Jocko's question. By authorities, I mean the city's homicide bureau, a very curious crowd, Mr. Forbes, and the fire department. Mr. Forbes, said Jocko, has already been bothered by the fire department. What did you tell them? I asked the old man. Mr. Forbes told them everything he knew about the warehouse, which was all he was able to tell them. The fire was a regrettable accident, Dane, but apparently it looks like some sort of detective story coincidence to you, and you alone. "'Do you mean to say,' said Forbes at last, "'that you think there was some connection between poor Walter's act—' "'He took a deep sigh. "'Between poor Mr. Huntington's demise,' he went on quickly, "'and the fire at the warehouse?' "'His milky blue eyes were as round as two silver dollars. "'Yes,' I said. "'I think there was.' "'But—but but in what possible way, Mr.' "'Dane,' I said, frowning. "'The name is Dane.' I said again. I can't tell you what the connection is between Mr. Huntington's death and the fire. Forbes seemed to recoil at the mention of his assistant's death. I only know that I feel a connection, Mr. Forbes, and I'm going to keep after it until I've been proven wrong. But you will, cried Forbes. You will be proven wrong. He was breathing strongly. There can't be... There mustn't be any connection. It's... Why, it's unimaginable, Mr. Uh, Dane... When he finished speaking, his mouth hung slightly open from the passion he seemed to feel. In that case, I said, I'll return the money you gave me, not knowing where the hell I was going to raise the rest of his thousand bucks, and investigate independently. That will be fine, said Jocko. Good luck to you, Dane. Oh, no, 
said Forbes. Oh, we don't want that at all, Walters. There must be, oh, how do you say it, muckraking into Walters' unfortunate act. I, well, if I felt there was something I could do to prevent any scandal from touching Walters' memory, and, and I failed to do it. Oh, oh, no. If Mr. Dane is so insistent, I think we should allow him to proceed. I say that because I know that Mr. Dane is a scrupulous person. He will not do anything that he knows serves no other purpose but to spread a necessary scandal upon poor Walters, upon his grave. The old man swiped furtively at his eyes. Well, said Jocko grudgingly, if that's how you feel, Mr. Forbes. It is the only way I can feel, but I don't mind saying that I am greatly disappointed in you, Mr. Dane. Tremendously. I thought that your sensibilities— Yes, sir, I said. But my senses won't let me abandon this thing. You've given me $1,000 to conduct a confidential investigation of your warehouse. Somehow that investigation began by concerning Mr. Huntington. Now, I added, picking my words carefully to keep the old guy from jumping like that, certain events have made it unfair for me to take that $1,000, and... Oh, I'll pay you another 1000 Forbes said. What? Both Jocko and I said the word in unison. The thousand or whatever it was you received yesterday was for what you thought you suspected at the warehouse. This is something different. This new investigation from what you say concerns Walter, or rather Walter's memory, God rest his soul. I insist that you accept another retainer. Oh, yes, indeed. I knew Jocko was staring at me. I could feel the heat of it burning my ears. If he hadn't been, and if he hadn't been so surly before, I would have answered differently. I think that's very fair, I said, and out of the corner of my eye I saw Jocko rocking as though I'd slugged him. It felt just as good. Is that, I added cruelly for Jocko's benefit, in addition to expenses? Whatever is usual, said Forbes, and it was obvious he hadn't even read about guys in this line of work. Very good, Mr. Forbes, I said. Now I'll need something else. Something else? Yes, I said. I'll need the fullest cooperation from the mm, employees at Oceanic. They'll have to be helpful, Mr. Forbes, if I'm to get anywhere. Of course, he said. For example, I said, I'd like to start this morning by having a good look at Mr. Huntington's office. Walter's office? He was dismayed. His office? To begin with, Mr. Forbes, and I'll need all of the cooperation I can get. That means Mr. Robinson here. As I suppose you know, Mr. Robinson occupies Mr. Huntington's office now. Forbes nodded, not understanding apparently what was going on in here. And I'll need help from everyone else I may want to question. I understand, Forbes said. The voice that came from all points of the room spoke out suddenly. I'll instruct the staff, Mary said through the apparatus, to answer your questions and cooperate. Would you thank her for me, Mr. Forbes, I said. Obediently, the president of Oceanic picked up his own microphone. Thank you, Mary, he said into it. Then I thanked him and Jocko, and I left his office. As I emerged, Mary removed the headset and began writing another check. You are a very expensive man, she told me. I hope I'm worth it, I said. Yes, the old lady said. I hope you're worth it. I followed Jocko back to his office, keeping a safe two paces to the rear, from the set of his head on the bowed neck to the pistol-cracked sound of his heels, Jocko was sizzling. "'All right, Weisenheimer,' he said when we were facing each other near the dark-haired girl's desk. "'Now let's see you perform. You've got sixty seconds to work in. Get going.' 
I've got all day to work in, I said, and all day tomorrow and the next day. After all, the old guy gave me a thousand dollars. I've got to be thorough. One thousand? Two thousand? And for what, Dane? You may kid him, but don't forget who you're talking to now. How could I? I said, walking around him to the large window behind the desk. He jumped from here? I asked. I told you that last night. That's what you told me, I agreed. Don't start that again. I'm warning you. If you don't want to cooperate, Robinson, I told him in a different tone, then I'll have to conduct this investigation differently. Holy Hannah, he breathed. Conduct this investigation differently. Have you ever heard anything like that? No, the girl said in a throaty, vibrating voice. I've never heard anything like that. I'll bet you've heard a lot of other things, though, I told her, looking out of the window at the scene below. It would have looked something like this to a man getting ready to jump. I beg your pardon, the girl said in that dirty voice. Granted, I said. Then I turned to Jocko. When the police came back up here to investigate Huntington's fall, who did they talk to? In the office, he said. The only one still around was Mary, Mr. Forbes' secretary. Besides Huntington, of course. Everyone else had called it a day and gone home. It's all in the record downstairs, he told me. The building checks everybody who leaves after five and arrives before nine. The police looked at that record, I suppose. What do you think? I smiled at him. I'm getting a thousand dollars. Two thousand, to think, Jocko. Very expensive thoughts. That made him snort. Where was Mary when the cops arrived? She was clearing Mr. Forbes' desk and getting ready to go home herself. Why don't you ask her? Jocko, if you don't want to cooperate... Look, Dane, I'm very busy. Besides my own work, I've got to handle Huntington's as well. Yes, I said. How come, Jocko? Since when are you a big insurance expert? Ask Mr. Forbes that, he said. He hired me. You've got a hell of a nerve, I said, yapping about my two thousand bucks. What's your haul up here, Jocko? Of all the goddamn gall, he said. Of all the goddamn gall I've ever listened to. This window, I interrupted. I assume it was open when the police arrived. Of course it was open, he answered angrily. Is this your idea of an investigation? <laughs> no, I laughed. Come here a minute, Jocko. He stood beside me and we looked out the window. I don't know anything at all about Huntington except what I've heard. I saw him once, and that was yesterday and only for a second. Do you know what he looked like to me in that second? What? He looked like a man who would stand here at this window for ninety years and never jump out of it. Jocko was silent for a long moment. Then he said, The man had his troubles, Dane, as you know. Jocko glanced to his side at the secretary who was watching us intently. He was very ill, been in bad health for some time. Finally, it looked to him like a better idea to be dead. Yes, I admitted not wanting to fill her attentive ears with anything that didn't concern her. He had his troubles. All God's chillin' got troubles. All God's chillin' have their own ways of getting out of them. Huntington is out of his. For heaven's sake, let him rest in peace. I sighed and turned to look down at the desk. On one corner was a stack of insurance policies. The policy on top was stenciled with the bright red word, cancelled. On the other side of the desk was another pile of policies from various companies, and these were not stenciled. What are these? I asked. This is part of Huntington's work, said Jocko. The brokers have to cancel their copies of the policies that lapse, 
I'm sending these over to the warehouse. What warehouse? We've rented one on First Avenue, he said. I picked up one of the canceled documents and read it. The amount of premium was $38,000. What's this thing? I asked Jocko, pointing to a large square stamp in the lower left-hand corner of the policy. It had also been stenciled with the red canceled. That's the federal tax stamp. What are you doing, taking a short course in insurance? Yeah. What do you mean a tax stamp? Since when do insurance policies carry stamps like this? Life insurance doesn't, he explained. These are marine insurance policies that Oceanic secured abroad. Any marine insurance placed by a foreign insurance company gets taxed by our government, Dane. We pay the tax by purchasing these stamps from the Treasury. How much is the tax? Buying the stamps was one of Huntington's jobs, Jocko said. Don't you know how much they were? He shrugged. I don't know. Maybe they run four or five percent of the premium. I whistled. Four cents for every dollar is a healthy cut for Uncle Sam. But what's all this got to do with anything? I told you I was busy, Dane. How about getting the hell out of here? Don't crowd me, Jocko. Give me room. Is that what you call being busy? Canceling policies? It's got to be done. That's the law. Yes, I answered. And you were always the boy who obeyed the law. Now, look, Dane. Don't be so touchy, I told him. Sit down and play with your pretty red stencils. He didn't sit down. Are you getting out of my office? His voice was tight. For a while, Jocko, I said. See you around. He didn't say anything more as I left the office, but the dark-haired girl with the extraordinary build said goodbye with an inflection that was lost on me. I continued down the hall through the reception room, in and then out of the elevator, until I was finally out on the street again. I was thinking of nothing but what Jocko had told me about the policies and what I remembered seeing in the warehouse files two nights before. Maybe the law did say to cancel those internal revenue stamps on policies that came from abroad, but the one I had looked at had been issued in London, and it hadn't been cancelled. It didn't, in fact, even have a stamp in the lower left-hand corner. And that was how Huntington had been embezzling Oceanic. He had been buying stamps for the foreign policies, all right. But when a policy lapsed, say one in ten, he had not cancelled the stamp, but had transferred it to another policy, a new one that had been placed with some company like Lloyd's or Commercial Union. Then he had charged his department with the amount of the stamp, 4% of whatever the premium was, and in due course, a company check would come to him as reimbursement for the tax money that had never been paid to the government. If he had been stealing in that way for a year, as Jocko had told me, the amount probably ran into six figures. A hefty theft, and an annoying one to track down. Unless, of course, you had been shilled into it. Then you stumble into a warehouse and blindly open up the exact file that tells the story. Where else would there be any evidence? Not in Huntington's office. All the policies there, the ones still in force would bear the tax stamp. Only the policies I'd seen in the warehouse, their ashes I'd seen last night, would show what was going on. To me, that meant the fire in Huntington's death had to have a connection. And when they had a connection, then Walter had not willingly jumped from that window, and the fire had been deliberately set to cover up the embezzlement. Someone in that building had been working with Huntington. That someone had made him expendable. I told the cabbie to drop me at a Western Union office. The message I sent was addressed to Fred Shelby, owner of the Pioneer Agency in Chicago. It read, What do you hear about Jocko Robinson? Urgent. And love. Timothy Dane. Then I got back in the cab and went on uptown to my office. End of chapter 13
Chapter 14 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 14 My telephone had only been jangled once that morning, and after causing a high-grade disturbance in the bank with the deposit of a second thousand-dollar check, I sat down to hear the girl from the answering service tell me to call Lieutenant Harper as soon as possible. I did. I gotta look at your friend. Hal said. They were just signing a release for his body at the medical examiner's when I walked in. The examiner was peaceful about him? I asked. Death by his own will is a result of a fall, he quoted. Huntington was a suicide. He was. Well, Hal said and paused. I looked at him, Timmy. Naturally, everybody started to fuss around because a homicide man was poking his nose in. The examiner started to op off very expertly, and I just kept nodding at him and looking at the corpse. Now listen. I wouldn't in ten thousand years want to get quoted on this, and it wasn't even enough to warrant holding the body from the undertaker. It could have happened naturally. What could have happened naturally, for God's sakes? The shape of his body, said Hal. The condition of it. You mean he didn't fall from that window? Oh, yes, Tim, he fell. Lord, yes. Huntington came down forty-three floors and hit the pavement. Make no mistake about that. Then what are you talking about? I'm talking about the shape he was in after a fall like that. Tim, I looked at a guy three months ago. He was about this Huntington's age, 48, 50, and this guy jumped ten floors. Well, this guy's body is a lot more disarranged, if you know what I mean, than Huntington's. I don't know exactly what you do mean, I said. Bones broken, dislocations, limbs sprung from sockets. There was a lot less of that on this Huntington than on the guy who dropped ten floors. What does that prove? I asked discouragingly. Proof? Tim, like I said when I started, it doesn't prove one blessed thing. But if you called me last night on just a little bit more than a hunch about this guy, then I advise you to keep after it. Because he didn't have as many bones broken. Exactly. You see, Tim, even when a person has made up his mind to jump from a building, even when they actually do jump, it's only natural to fight to fall. They stiffen up, Tim, sort of a desperate last-second bracing against the impact. It's when they stiffen up that their bones get broken and dislocated. That's why cats can take a hard fall. They're loose when they strike the surface, instinctively. Same is true of a trapeze artist. When he's doing a double spin and his partner misses him, he heads down through space toward the net. Now, if it was you or me falling, that net would snap our neck in two or break our back. But the trapeze boy lets himself relax and... Nine times out of ten, he comes out of it with nothing worse than a bad neck burn. That all may be true, Hal, but I don't think Huntington was a trapeze artist. Besides, he knew he didn't have a net to hit. All that was waiting for him was Wall Street. Right. But suppose he didn't know he was falling, Tim. Suppose he came out of that window unconscious and never regained consciousness through the length of the fall. If he were out, he'd be loose and not tightening his body to resist the shock. Drunks and sleepwalkers take astounding falls, Tim, and just get up and walk away. Babies who haven't learned to be afraid of falling sometimes drop six stories and there isn't even a broken bone. Your guy could have been unconscious when he left that window. Could he have been dead, Hal, before he struck the pavement? Hal said no. He was killed by the fall, that is definite. Hell, boy, that was the first thing I asked the medico. The fall killed him and he might have been... Might have been, Tim, unconscious when the fall began. Could he have lost consciousness during the fall? I asked. Could he have blacked out? Hal said no again. 
If he had the energy to climb through a window and jump, he would have been conscious at the time he hit. Well, I said, thanks an awful lot, Hal. As you said, knowing a thing like that, or even thinking that it could be true, gives me something to hang on to. Thanks. You're welcome, he said. Naturally, anything you happen to turn up on it, you're going to get in touch with me immediately. You're not going to be one of these heroes who withholds evidence. Naturally, I said. People lose licenses for being heroes like that. Thanks again, Hal. He said goodbye, and that was that. What he had told me, of course, made me surer than ever that I was heading in the right direction. All I had to do was to find who had pushed Huntington out the window. Mr. Forbes, according to what he told Jocko, had passed Huntington's lighted office at 6 o'clock. Huntington jumped at 6.30. But Oceanic was empty of people except Mary, or so Jocko said the building's records would show. Things like that bother the hell out of me. It means I have to work. I had the phone all ready to lift and dial Sally's number to check on everything at her place. She had been on my mind steadily, and I thought that tonight I could pick up a few groceries, a steak, and a quart, and we could have dinner over there. But my phone rang before I could get a signal. I said hello to the girl who had said goodbye to me an hour ago in Jocko Robinson's office. She sounded as suggestive as before, and as it turned out, she actually did have a suggestion. She said that she didn't think Mr. Robinson had been very cooperative with me, but that if I wanted to try a few questions on her, I'd find her very cooperative. I told her that was very cooperative of her and was all set to throw my first question when she interrupted. Of course, she explained, I could be very cooperative too. And I could start by taking her out to dinner tonight. Why dinner? I asked. This is strictly business with me, sister. Exactly, she said. Strictly business. The dinner would be evidence of good faith, and after all, I did have those $2,000 and no cooperation up at Oceanic. What, I interrupted her, did she have in mind? Exactly. She had $300 in mind, exactly. For 300 I could buy information about Walter Huntington, about Jocko Robinson, about Oceanic, and, if I was interested, about Lorena Dahl. About who? About me, she said. I'm Lorena Dahl. Well, I said to myself, that makes sense. You didn't look like a secretary, you don't talk like a secretary, and... Unless Billy Rose is open to business school, you aren't even named like a secretary. Aloud, I asked her what made her information worth $300. The same thing, said Dahl, that made it worth $2,000 to you. Sorry, I told her, but I doubt if you could give me $10 worth of news that I haven't gotten already. You lousy cheapskate, said Lorena Dahl. So long, lady, I said. Make it a hundred, she said, plus the dinner. It was the old story. Pleasure versus business. Sally against this man-eater. Okay, I said, all business. Where do I pick you up? She named New York's famous women's hotel. She said eight o'clock in the lobby. She said bring the hundred with me, in cash. She said goodbye. I held down the button on the cradle of the phone, let it come back up again, and dialed Sally. I was just going to call you, she said. How would you like to come over here and let me cook you a dinner? Oh, fine. Steak? I asked. And what a steak. But first there'll be cocktails, and after dinner... I'll have to get a rain check, Sally. I'm working tonight. Oh, no. But you have to have dinner somewhere. That's where I'm working, I explained. At dinner. She was silent for a moment. Will you call me when you're through? She said. No matter how late? With pleasure, I told her. Goodbye, Sally. 
Bye, Timothy. And Timothy, whoever she is, I hope she chokes on her antipasto. She hung up. At 8.15 that night, Lorena Dahl slithered across the spacious lobby of her hotel in a shimmering dress of coal-black satin that she should have bought at half price. It was only half a dress. The front was two strips of satin that tied around the back of her neck and plunged their separate ways until they joined the body of the dress in a V, just a sixteenth of an inch above her navel. With each undulating sway of her body, two very round and very firm breasts fought to get out from behind the thin strips that held them. The breasts seemed to be winning, and if Lorena Dahl ever took a deep breath, the battle would be over. I stood up and said hello, wondering if we'd be arrested before we got out of the lobby. I'm a little late, she purred. I took some extra time getting dressed tonight. I wanted to look special. You do, I said truthfully. That's good, she answered. I think our conversation this afternoon went all wrong. I really do want to be of some help to you, Timothy. She cocked her head at me seductively, and the two black eyes promised all a man needs but help. We got out of the hotel safely, and after we were in the dark interior of a cab, I asked her where she would like to eat. Someplace special, said Lorena, snuggling into the seat comfortably. Someplace where we can pretend we're just a man and a woman going out on a date. A very nice-looking man, incidentally. Some would say she had a voice that was charged with sex and passion and longing, and the promise of longing fulfilled. But it just annoyed me, and the words she spoke annoyed me more. It was a phony sex, and laid on with a trowel. Where would you like to eat? I asked again, and the driver was turned in his seat waiting for the same information. The Skylight Club, said Lorena Dahl, and when she said someplace special, that was what she meant. Let's just sit on top of the world, just... You and me. I gave the address to the driver, and we were there in several minutes. An express elevator climbed relentlessly for sixty-four stories, and we stepped into the rather breathtaking lounge of the Skylight Club. The man behind the plush rope glanced appreciatively at the girl and quizzically at me. Good evening, he said. This is Mr. Dane, Lorena told him. Ah, uh, yes, he said, glancing at a card in his hand. We have the table you requested, Mr. Dane. A look that was supposed to be supercharged with meaning passed from his eyes into mine. But, of course, I didn't get the point as yet. He held the rope down for us with a flourish, and we followed him across the expensive, thick-rugged room, past a very inviting little bar set unobtrusively against the wall, and out onto a small balcony that really did overlook the whole world. The balcony had room for only one table, and this glowed in the soft light of a single candle. Around the table ran a sort of couch, and I held the girl's tanned bare arm to help her sit down. "'What will your cocktails be?' asked the captain. "'For me, a martini,' she said. "'Very, very dry. Very, very powerful.' "'As mademoiselle wishes,' he answered, his eyes making a photograph of Lorena Dahl's figure. "'And what does monsieur wish?' "'I wish that everything was just as it was, except that the girl in the satin, uh dress, had honey, blonde hair, a warm voice, and an honest smile. Out loud, I wished for a dry Manhattan. My old standby, rye on the rocks, seemed a little crude for the balcony table at the Skylight Club. And as I suspected, the bartender here knew how to blend a cocktail so that the vermouth was impossible to taste. The drink was good and cold, and I sipped it appreciatively. The girl went after her crystal-clear martini as though somebody had poured water into it by mistake. Then she was lifting her second one and smiling at me brightly in a toast, 
as I worked my way halfway through my first. Well, she said, how do you like my arrangements? If you overlooked anything, I replied, I don't know what it is. Isn't it special, Timothy? Isn't it a date? It's something, I said, and she can make what she wanted to out of the word. When do we eat? Her eyes opened in great surprise, and she leaned forward to rest her hand over mine. The movement, of course, played havoc with the narrow halter over her chest. Eat? Oh, Timothy, we've just arrived. Drink and be merry, said my half-naked companion. For later we eat. Don't you want to be merry? Her head was tilted far to the side, and the great mass of jet-black hair hung provocatively just above the tabletop. I looked at her eyes, and her eyes moved to the opening in the black satin. Be merry with me, Timothy. Just as suddenly she was erect and the fire had died in her eyes. Lorena wants a martini, she announced. Very dry, please. I moved my head and a waiter appeared out of nowhere. I ordered the drink and a second one for myself. I've changed my mind, she said to the waiter. I'd like a double martini and make it snappy. When he got back, I asked for menus. And when he got back again with those, Lorena Dahl ordered another martini, double. It was an amazing performance. Not the quantity the girl took, but the fact that they didn't seem to have any extra special effect. Except for the dead seriousness with which she ordered the martinis, drinking them didn't seem to make her especially sloppy or even drowsy. She was still laying on the charm broadly, just as she had in the lobby of her hotel. You don't like my dress? She told me. Why do you say that? Oh, I suppose you like it, she said, glancing down at herself critically. But you're not crazy about it. It doesn't make you drool, does it? You don't look at me and get ideas like every other man does. Who the hell are you, anyway? She asked suddenly. That was a tough question, and I was saved from answering it by the arrival of two marvelous-looking fillets. And not only did they look marvelous, they tasted delicious. In fact, I became so absorbed in the steak that I was hoisting my third forkful before I looked up to see my undressed lady watching me intently, her knife and fork lying innocent and unused beside her plate. What's the matter? I didn't come here to eat, the girl said. What did you come here for? I didn't come here to eat. I want another drink. It's a beautiful steak, I told her. I want another drink, she repeated like a broken record. When it arrived, she attacked it as though she had just crawled across Death Valley. You make me sick, she said. Don't confuse me with those martinis, I told her. Do you really feel sick? Go to hell, she said. I feel fine. Stop eating that damn steak and look at me. Don't I look good enough to eat? She held her fingers on the thin strips of the halter as though she were going to pull it away from her breast. I slammed my fork hard on the table. Look, I told her sharply, keeping my voice low. You can cut out the goddamn nonsense right now. You conned me into this thing, this date, as you call it, but now you can stop trying to prove you're something special in women. Sit there and drink this place out of its gin, I growled at her. But for Christ's sake, stop threatening to take your clothes off every other second. Did you bring my hundred dollars? asked Lorena Dahl, sitting erect and holding her head back. The deal's off, I told her. You can't, she cried. I need the money. What you need is a rest, honey. Go join a nudist colony. Her fingernails dug right through my jacket and into my arm. Please, I need the money. I can tell you all about Mr. Huntington and about Mr. Robinson. I looked at her closely. She didn't look tight 
but very much sober and in earnest. "'And you ask about those insurance policies this morning?' she said. "'What about them?' "'Do you have the hundred dollars?' "'Yes,' I said. "'What do you want me to do, take it out and give it to you here?' She nodded and held out her hand. I shrugged and took an envelope full of five-dollar bills from my inside pocket and laid it on the table near her tiny purse. She scooped it up, counted the bills carefully, and put the envelope in the purse. Then she smiled at me. Now, she said, suppose I told you to go to hell, what would you do? Don't try it, I said. She laughed. If you made a fuss, do you know what I'd do? I'd stand up and scream to the whole place. I'd say you slept with me and gave me a present, and now you want it back? I'd like to see your face then. I watched her and knew that was exactly what she would do. But you wouldn't like to see your own face, I told her. I'd slap you silly, sister. Your teeth would rattle. It was her turn to watch me, and I think she knew I meant it, too. All right, she said. What do you want me to tell you? Start with the policies, and don't pull any more of your act on me. You know, she said, you could sleep with me, tonight, if you wanted to. I don't like you at all, she added, but I'd like to go to bed with you. All I'm buying is information, sweetheart. Tell me about the policies. It'd be for free, Timothy. One on the house. There's a little hotel just around the corner from here. Well, tell me about the policies, damn it. I'll tell you about them in bed, she said, if you're still interested. You'll tell me about them right now. Right now. She began to sulk, but she also began talking. Mr. Robinson lied to you when he said he didn't know exactly how much the tax stamp cost that goes on the policies. He knows what they cost. I've heard him talk to Mr. Huntington about it several times. I offered her a cigarette and lit one for myself. He talked to Huntington about the stamps? What did he say? Oh, he'd just come in the office and pretend he was curious. It was never official, really. Mr. Robinson would just act friendly and interested. And was Huntington friendly with him? Well, he wasn't unfriendly. Listen, can't we leave here, Timothy? No, I told her. And then the waiter came to ask us about dessert. I ordered some brandy and iced coffee. He brought that, and I asked the girl to go on with her information about Jocko and Walter Huntington. I really don't like you at all, she said. Understand that. But you're certainly different, and... And you're a masochist, I interrupted. Stop talking about us going to bed, Lorena. We'd probably kill each other. Stick to things like tax stamps. Did Huntington ever let you cancel them when he was busy? Never, she said. What the hell's a masochist? Look it up when you get home. He was pretty careful about who stamped the policies and canceled them. And how? And I'll tell you something else. You said that Mr. Huntington didn't look like the type who would jump out the window. Well, I was his secretary for six months, and I know he wasn't the type to do a thing like that and he wasn't in bad health either. I guess you'd know about that, I said. She shook her head. No, she said, shrugging. Not that at all. Mr. Huntington was one of those happily married types. All he ever talked to me about was the insurance business. I guess it was the look in my eyes. Honest, she said. He never said boo to me in all the six months I was there. She sounded like she meant it. How did he come to hire you as a secretary? I asked. He didn't hire me. I was assigned to him. Who did hire you? She looked at me strangely. I'm selling you information about Mr. Huntington, she said. Isn't that your job, to find out what made Mr. Huntington jump out from the window? In a way. 
What's so mysterious about who hires you at Oceanic? Ask me questions about Mr. Huntington, she said. I sipped at the brandied iced coffee. Okay, I said. Did Mr. Huntington like your picture very much? She had been lifting her own tall glass, and now it slipped from her hand and clattered to the floor. A squad of waiters appeared and whisked the broken glass away. I waited until Lorena Dahl had a fresh drink before speaking again. Isn't that how you became his secretary? Because of the picture? She poured the brandy into the coffee very deliberately. What? She said very quietly. Do you know about my picture? That's not important, Lorena. I haven't seen it, if that's what you mean. What is important, at least to me, is that you give me a song and dance about Huntington's virtue and all the time you know that the man made a hobby out of collecting pictures of nudes. And not only that, a picture of you is included. She was shaking her head as I talked. No, she said. You're wrong. You don't know anything about it. You've got Mr. Huntington all wrong. He doesn't... He didn't... Then she stopped. He didn't what? Are the pictures important? She asked me. Are they important in what you're supposed to be doing? Everything about Huntington is important. If I told you the whole story about the pictures, she said, how much would you pay me? I just gave you a hundred dollars, I reminded her. Yes, but that wasn't for what I know about the pictures or why I'm working at Oceanic. Those things are personal, she said. They cost money. How much do you want? Three hundred dollars. Okay. Do you have it with you? No, I said. I'll give you a check for it, or an IOU. Cash, she said, shaking her head again. Would you give me five hundred dollars in cash? Five hundred? You must think those pictures of yours are as important as a hydrogen bomb. Maybe they are, she answered. I never thought of them in connection with Mr. Huntington's death. Maybe five hundred isn't enough. If you talk to yourself long enough, I said, you'll be up in the millions. I don't have to talk to myself about the pictures. I don't even have to talk to you. Maybe I'll talk to somebody else about them now. Who? She gave me that cruel smile again. Wouldn't you like to know? Come on, she said. I want to get back to my place and telephone somebody. What are you turning this into? I asked. An auction? That's right, an auction. What do you bid? Three hundred. All right. You take me home and I'll call some people for their bids. It goes to the highest bidder. I stood up from the table and left money for the check. You're making a mistake, I told the girl after we were in a cab again and on the way to her hotel. An auction is one thing, but what I think you have in mind is blackmail. Blackmail is a very bad occupation. Not if it pays, she answered. And this will pay. We didn't talk about it any more until she was leaving the cab. You go home, she said and I'll call you. If $300 wins, then you can bring the money and I'll meet you somewhere. You're making a mistake, I warned her again. Blackmail never pays off. Lorena Dahl only smiled at me and walked away into the lobby of her hotel. I gave the cabbie my address and went on home to wait for her call. There was a telegram shoved under my door. Nobody at Pioneer talks about Jocko Robinson anymore. Love, Fred Shelby. The chief of the Pioneer Agency, I knew, loved to send cryptic messages. But what the hell did this one mean? Had Jocko quit Shelby, or had he been fired? Had he left for a better job at Oceanic, or was he in disgrace back in Chicago? I stuck the telegram in my pocket, and then remembered my promise to see Sally no matter how late I got back. It was 11.30 as I dialed her number. 
Her roommate, Jean, answered. Timothy, isn't Sally with you? No, of course not. Why should she be? She went out an hour ago, Jean told me, fear and surprise in her voice. She was in a terrible hurry. She said she was going to meet you, that you were in trouble. Did she get a call? Yes, and then she flew out of here. Oh, Timothy, I'm scared. So was I. Plenty. But I didn't say so. I hung up and started out the door again. A dark shape faced me in the dimly lit hall. "'What the hell do you want?' I asked it. "'I want to see you, Timothy,' said Jocko Robinson. "'Save it,' I said, pushing around him. "'Now I'm too busy to talk.' He moved his body in front of me, and we collided. "'Wait,' he said. "'Before you get into any more trouble, you'd better talk to me.' "'What do you mean, any more trouble?' Don't tell me you're lined up with Castell, too, you thieving bastard. Castell? Rocky Castell? What the hell are you talking about? Get out of my way, Jocko, before I knock you over. You and who else? He snarled, and I let him have it. He went down with a crash, and I stepped over him. I'd finish that right now, I yelled to him over my shoulder. But I'm busy, you lousy thief. I heard him call my name as I went out the front door to 53rd Street. I climbed into a cab on 6th Avenue and ordered him to get down to the cabin club as fast as his heap would take us. We were halfway there before I finally took time to think. And when I thought, I realized how badly I missed that forty-five of mine in Sam Panansky's safe. That would get me in and out of the cabin, if I had it. But I didn't have it, and I was going to get in and out of there anyhow. And Sally would be coming out with me. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 15 It was easy. Getting into Castell's office was easy. It required no more effort than simple walking. I paid off the cab, entered the cabin, strode past the bar, around the edge of the tables, past the high-bosomed brunettes singing on the bandstand, through the hidden door in the wall, across the foyer, and threw open the black door marked private. Rocky Castell was there, in the chair behind the desk. He wore a soft gray flannel suit, and his black hair shone with brilliantine, highlighting the gray sideburns. Handsome was there, standing near the desk. His face was still raw and discolored from last night. I forget how he was dressed, or whether his hair was as shiny as his boss's. Sally was there, cowering in the chair I had occupied. She wore a sheer dress that was white and striped with blue. She was beautiful and worth anything. Especially after the indescribable way she cried, Oh, Timothy! and sprang from the chair and into my arms. I held her shaking body against me and whispered something or other to her that was probably trite and not worth remembering. Then I tried for a grand slam and missed an eyelash. I whirled Sally around and grabbed for the doorknob. As my fingers touched it, something in the lock clicked and the knob turned uselessly and unopening in my hand. From the desk, Castell had locked the door. Now what, sucker? I heard the mean, familiar voice at my back. What's your next play? Even if you'd gotten the door open, you'd have run into Vito. He just stepped out for a second. I took my arm from Sally's waist. Over there, I indicated the farthest corner of the room. Stand over there, baby, and don't move. Timothy, don't. Her great round eyes pleaded with mine. I moved my head again to the corner, and she went obediently, out of the immediate danger zone. I'm touched, rasped Rocky Castell in a voice that quivered with fury. This 
breaks my heart, Seamus. I turned to them. Both he and Handsome watched me from narrowed eyes, guns in their hands, and pointed at me. Knuckles rapped insistently at the door. A muffled voice said, Open up, boss. It's me, Vito. Wait there, Castell shouted back. Stay where you are. Then I dove headlong down toward the floor and across it in the direction of Handsome's legs in front of the desk. He had carried his gun at the hip with the barrel pointed at my head. I knew he would have had to read my mind to lower the sights in time to hit me. It worked. The shot passed over my head, and now my momentum carried me crashing against the gunman's legs, putting the wide expanse of the desk front between my body and Castell's own gun. Sally was screaming in terror. My shoulder hit Handsome just below the knees and lifted him off the floor and over my shoulder. His gun thudded against the thick carpet, and as I grabbed it, I rolled to the side of Castell's shiny desk. Outside, Vito was pounding on the door and yelling to get inside. Sally screamed again. Castell, surprised by my sudden dive and the noise and confusion, had no idea where I was. When he did see me, I was already coming up at him, and the slug from his gun damaged only the rug. My outstretched hand, the one that now held Handsome's gun, struck against his wrist and forced his arm upwards. He stood there like the Statue of Liberty when I hit him with everything my body held. Something inside his jaw made a dull crunching sound as he reeled backwards against the wall and slumped to the floor. I whirled to face the oncoming Handsome. Tonight he had the blackjack, and it was inches from my head as I turned. But tonight I was moving in luck. I wheeled away from it, and the force of his swing carried him head-on into the upsweeping gun barrel I held in my fist. He cried out horribly and pitched forward on his face. The pounding on the door went on, but now Sally had stopped yelling. Her side was winning temporarily. I shot her a grin and told her to stay in that corner. Then I dug my fingers under Costell's expensive flannel lapels and hauled him to his still wobbly legs. The picture! I shouted into those glassy gray eyes. Where's the picture? The gangster began to shake his head, but I stopped that abruptly by rapping against his broken jaw with the side of the pistol. Where? Desk, he mumbled. Even moving his face to talk was painful to him. I shoved him against the wall again and turned to the desk. Desk, hell. All I could see on the desk was a row of colored buttons. No drawers, no nothing. It was as smooth on his side as on the other. I grabbed for him again angrily. Red, he pushed out through his lips. Red button. I jammed my finger on the red button and a panel on the right side of the desk slid sideways, revealing a shelved section. The middle shelf held a small stack of photographic prints. My arm darted inside and came back with the pictures. There they were, six prints of the six naked and beautiful girls that this louse had delivered to Walter Huntington for thirty thousand filthy dollars. Sally, my Sally, was on top, where she belonged in any crowd, posed singing as she had described it. I flipped through the others quickly. Lord, what women. On the bottom was Lorena Dahl, sitting at a typewriter, but turned around and apparently taking dictation, just as she did every day at Oceanic, except that in this picture she was not half-nude, but completely. Sally stood at my shoulder. Don't look at them, she said, just like a woman. Okay, I told her. I bent the prince double, picked up Castell's nude lady lighter, and touched the flame to their edges. You're burning mine, too? she asked just like a woman. I haven't got any use for your picture, I said, and then I had an idea. I slapped the burning edges of the prints against Castell's desk and got the fire out. I put them in my pocket. So you are saving them, she accused. Yes, I said, but I'm damned if I know why. Now, I added, comes the tough part. What do you mean? We both got in here, I said. How do we get out? Oh, Timothy, 
Are you all right, honey? What did that... What did he do to you? As I spoke, Castell began to get to his feet slowly, holding the left side of his face with his hand. Handsome still lay motionless on the rug. Outside of frightening me half to death, Sally said. He didn't have time to do anything. What did he say to you? He said he was going to take care of me for a while. That's what scared me. He said I was going to live upstairs over the club in a nice room. I was going to have everything my heart desired, including Rocky Castell. She stared at Castell and then turned her head from him quickly. What did you tell him? I told him... Sally stopped and looked at me like a little kid. I told him Timothy Dane would rescue me. I actually used those corny words, Timothy. I smiled back. And what did he say to that? He laughed and told me to act my age. He said I wasn't living in a fairy tale. And then, bang, you came charging into the room, just like a fairy tale. If I get you out of here, it will be one. I turned to Castell, whose eyes bored into my face, full of pain and terrible anger. The knocking on the door, which had stopped for a few moments, began again. Mr. Castell! came Vito's voice into the room. Everything all right, Mr. Castell? It's Vito! Let me in! The problem was whether to open the door and let him in or not. The brief silence before might mean that outside was not just a little hophead, but half a dozen more. The second problem was what button opened the door. Besides the red one, there were five more, all different colored. Suppose the blue button didn't open the door, but brought the half-dozen guys on the run. "'Come over here,' I said to Rocky Castell, but he only continued to glare at me out of those maniacal red-gray eyes, and I knew I couldn't frighten him into doing anything to help us get out. Even if I forced him, he wouldn't care if his own life was in danger. All that went through his mind as he stared was to kill me, and I didn't want to think of what he would do to Sally. "'Timothy, I'm frightened.' She had seen what was in Castell's eyes as he stood there silently rubbing what seemed to be a badly aching jaw. Castell, I began again, knowing it was no use. What will it get you except a lot of trouble? Why not play it smart? Point out the button that opens the door and come over here and stand in front of us. Let us get out and forget about us. It was no use. His hot gaze moved between my face and Sally's, coming to rest on her. The girl, I said. Let the girl out. I'll stay here. No! Sally's voice had begun as a protest, but ended with a piercing, terrified, Timothy! The warning came too late. I felt a vicious, powerful blow against my leg behind the kneecap. Handsome had made a sucker out of me. He hit me again with the sapper, and the leg buckled under me. I went down on one knee, and Handsome came up on one of his. My luck had run out. The blackjack came at my head with murderous swiftness, and though I ducked forward, it still caught me full behind the ear, hard, and I pitched forward. I felt the blackjack again. He struck at the collarbone where he had hit me yesterday. I lay on the rug face down, and the room swirled crazily. Above me, there was a terrible confusion of sounds. Sally's voice and dismayed sympathy trying to reach down to me. Handsome's and triumph. Castell's. Just a mad, unintelligible roar and then the sound of the door swinging open. Vito's high, choked voice sounded as meaningless to me as his boss's, but I knew that I had guessed badly. He had been alone outside. All I had had to do a short moment before was press all the buttons at once and take care of Vito as quickly as possible. That was all. The shattered nerve in my collarbone pained as much as the last time, but I had other things to think about now. I had Sally to think about, but all I could do was roll over on my back unable to get up on my legs because there was nothing in my legs to get up on and try to protect her from the floor. 
What with? Your eyes? I ask myself ferociously. No, you slick, stupid bastard. Then Rocky Castell was standing directly above me, and his hand was stretched toward Vito, a feverish gesture for the knife. The sharp, evil shiv appeared in Castell's shaking fingers, and as I stared up at him helplessly, his arm darted above his head and he came down toward me. A thunderous explosion rose above every other sound in that room. Four thunderous explosions, separate but in frantic succession, and four flashes of orange flame. Four shots from the doorway, and Rocky Castell came down toward me and the knife dug into his expensive rug. The man who had held it was draped lifelessly over my body, four holes in his body, one through the heart and the others in a straight line that ranged to the top of his head. It seemed very important to twist my own head around and see who stood in that doorway. To do it, I had to go through more tortures than hell itself, but it was the most important thing in my life to see who held that gun. It was Jocko Robinson who held a smoking police thirty-eight in his sure hand, and now it moved slowly between Handsome and Vito, who stood frozen on each side of me and the dead Castell. It was Jocko who had come through that door during the last possible second and who knew that he must fire enough slugs to kill a man already in the swift act of murder and still save two slugs to defend the new situation. It was Jocko, just like old times. "'Well, Dane, get up,' he said. "'What the hell are you waiting for? The second feature?' Nothing ever hurt so hard or felt so good. I smiled at him foolishly and got up, and I was glad that Sally was still too stunned to help me do it. If somebody had tried to help, I'd never have made it to my feet. "'What kept you?' I asked him, and fell down again. End of chapter 15Chapter 16 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard. The Slibbervox recordings in the public domain, read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 16 I lay sprawled on the couch in Sally's apartment, my head in her lap, and she was taking the kinks out of it with the tips of her long, cool fingers. We both watched Jocko Robinson and listened to him. Back at Castell's, there had been a lot of police. Jocko, being Jocko, had insisted we all hang around and wait for the formalities and the law had come charging in, intimidating everybody they could lay their fat hands on. But the intimidation had stopped abruptly when Jocko went off into a corner with a sharp-eyed captain and let him look at something in his wallet. Now, in the apartment, I was looking at it. A neat gold badge lettered in blue with the words, Special Agent Treasury Department, and in the center was the U.S. seal. This, said Jocko sarcastically, is what I wanted to talk to you about at your place. But you have to do everything the hard way, just the way you did up at Oceanic. If anybody did it the hard way, I told him, it was you. First you're a claims man, now you're in the treasury. Why all the hocus pocus? Jocko smiled patiently. This is only temporary arrangement, thank God. I'm not working for any sixty dollars a week when I'm a partner in the Pioneer Agency. Oh no, a what? Partner, he repeated, and your telegram about me to Fred was very sweet, Timothy. He called me, and we had a laugh over it. That's why I came to see you. After Fred sent his wire back, I didn't want to get involved with that ridiculous forty-five of yours. What the hell do you mean, ridiculous? Timothy, Sally scolded. What the hell do you mean, ridiculous? I repeated. Skip it. He smiled, and the smile widened when Jean entered the room carrying a tray of cups and coffee. He watched her move around appraisingly. You girls, he said. Have a very homey place here. The redhead beamed at him. 
We've never entertained a tea man before, she said. Jocko grimaced. Don't call me that, he said. The job was only a cover-up. I'm a partner in an agency, a very good agency. Have you ever been to Chicago? he added. No, I haven't, she admitted wistfully. Jocko, I interrupted. Let's not stray. Why are you working for the government? What were you doing up at the broker's place? It's a tax evasion job, he said. The Treasury boys had an idea that Oceanic should have been buying a lot more tax stamps than they were. They sent somebody around to see Mr. Forbes, and he referred them to Huntington. Huntington opened up the locked files and let them look at all the copies of their clients' policies. All the foreign policies had the stamps on, and the stamps weren't counterfeit. So the revenue guy went back to his office, and as far as they were concerned in New York, Oceanic Brokerage was clean. But Fred Shelby was in Washington on business, and he got to talking shop with someone in the Treasury. This fellow wasn't convinced at all. Fred asked him if a private outfit like Pioneer uncovered it, would they be entitled to the 20% that the government pays off for all tax evasion money recovered. This fellow said, sure. When Fred got back to Chicago, he got credentials for me as a special agent, and we figured out how to handle it. I came here and spent a week getting myself in a very run-down condition. When I thought I'd looked seedy enough, I went up to Oceanic and asked for a job as a claims investigator. Huntington talked to me, and when he asked for references, I mumbled something about having worked at Pioneer. Huntington said he would let me know. Jocko stopped to sip at his coffee. This tastes wonderful, he said. So what happened? I asked. Jocko gave me a look. So Huntington hired me. He had checked on me at Pioneer and got back a report that I was unreliable. It didn't accuse me of anything in particular, but it didn't have anything good to report either. And when Huntington hired me after that, then I was positive he was the thief I was after. Who else would want a claims investigator like I looked to be? "'Gosh,' said Jean. "'That was clever, Mr. Robinson.' Jocko, he corrected her. "'Thanks.' "'So you got yourself inside the place,' I said, postponing their negotiations. "'What did you find out?' "'I found out that Walter Huntington was a very cautious thief, for a thief. "'He held the stamp operation all to himself. "'Not even his secretary, that doll girl, "'could help him when it came to cancelling policies or stamping new ones. "'I tried to get into the act myself, but he shooed me away. "'Then one night after I'd been there spending Pioneer's good money, "'half of it mine, incidentally, I played a hunch.' That afternoon, Huntington had been busily cancelling policies, and I waited outside the building for him after quitting time. He carried a briefcase with him, and I followed him uptown to the Harmony Bar. You too? What? Everybody in New York must have followed Huntington to that little dive at one time or another. Well, I know about you, said Jocko. Who else? Millions of guys, I said. For millions of reasons. Tonight you killed a louse who had one of the reasons to tail Huntington. It turned out that he had the wrong reason, though. Castell had absolutely no idea why Huntington went in there. But you did, Jocko told me, and I was just getting ready to rig a trap for Huntington. Actually find him in the warehouse where he was lifting stamps off old policies to put them on new ones the next day. But you had to come nosing around and bring everything to a boil. It was accidental, Jocko. When I called you that night, I was just a shill. I was down there on Rocky's business, but I didn't know it. It was all my fault said Sally. Jocko shrugged. All's well that ends well. Pioneer doesn't get twenty percent of all the money that Huntington stole from the Treasury. Why not? I asked. He smiled. Believe it or not, all that Huntington had in his safe deposit box was four thousand dollars. 
His bank account was higher, but his wife will be able to prove that the money came legitimately. The man must have gotten away with plenty, but where it is, is anybody's guess. I shook my head. There's still something very fishy, Jocko. He laughed. Oh, bulldog Dane. The case is closed, Timothy. It died when Huntington jumped from that window. I started to say that Pioneer won't get twenty percent of any half million, but I went in to see Forbes this afternoon and explained myself to him and what I was doing. You've already told Forbes? Why not? The poor old guy ought to know, now that it's over. Besides, I've got to get back to Chicago. So soon? Jean asked. Well, Jocko began expansively, I don't... What did Forbes say? I broke in again. He took it hard, very hard, but then he pulled himself together and said that he understood. He agreed that Pioneer should get something for its trouble. He's certainly a fast man with a buck, I said. He's got it to be fast with, Timothy. The next job you're on, you'll work a month for a hundred dollars. This one is wound up in half a week and you're two thousand ahead. If it's wound up. Suppose, I said, that Huntington was only a part of the story. Suppose there's more. He grinned and shook his head. If you're thinking of hitting the old man for another thousand, you can forget it. Mary's going to keep Forbes away from you and every other private detective for a long, long time. We'll see. If Huntington was the beginning and the end of this job, Jocko, then who put a match to the warehouse? Jocko shrugged his thin shoulders. That's the fire department's headache. That warehouse fire was just one of those things, Timothy. A coincidence. Coincidence, my eye. Jocko's jaw set. Walter Huntington was a louse. He had everything he could ever want from Forbes, and instead of being loyal, he tried to steal the old man blind. That's what you say. That's what I know. Hell, I worked up there for four months, watching Huntington like a hawk every hour of it. He worked alone in this thing. There was no other thief but him. Let's take a walk, Jocko, I said. A walk? Now? Come on. Sally said, Let's all go for a walk. I never thought that being able to leave this apartment could seem so important. Why don't you go to bed? I asked softly. It's been a hard time, honey. You mean you'd rather we didn't go? You and I, I told her. We'll take a walk tomorrow night. Some place special. Where are you and Jocko going? We're just going out for a while. It's business, Sally. Isn't this mess over yet? Her voice had a quiver in it. For you it is, I said. For some other people, I'm not so sure. Timothy, Jocko said, if you're trying to ease your conscience about that money you got, why drag me into it? All you're doing is frightening the girls. Not as much as having to look at you. Come on, bright eyes, I said, taking him by the arm. The hands on the big paramount clock glowed at 1 a.m. as Jocko and I walked up 44th to Broadway. We had crossed 8th before I spoke. You still handy with electricity? I asked. Good Lord, you mean you actually hold me out of that nice apartment to fix some busted lamp in your room? <laughs> no, I laughed. Another question. When you went in and resigned, let's say, from Oceanic, did you give Forbes your building pass? No, I didn't. I'm glad you reminded me, Timothy. First thing tomorrow morning. It's already tomorrow morning, I reminded him. I want you to hold on to that pass, Jocko. Come off it, will you, boy? All this talk about electricity and building passes... I think Castell and his friends put you on Queer Street tonight. I turned him into Louis, the hideaway bar that's a favorite of mine. The boss gave us a smile and pointed to the table I always use. 
When there were two drinks in front of us, I told Jocko why Huntington wasn't working alone. I told him about Hal Harper and the medical examiner's report. I tore down his coincidence theory about the warehouse fire. I told him about Castell's angle, about Huntington and the pictures. When I was finished, he was pulling on his chin and studying the snow-white tablecloth. Finally, he shook his head. You make it sound good, Timothy, but Huntington is dead, and Al Castell is the same way. If Huntington had a partner, if, then it was Castell. There's your case, all wrapped up and down at the morgue. He looked at me over the top of his glass. If you carried your ideas all the way out, he said, then I'd be number one on your list. I swallowed some of my own drink and put the glass down. You certainly would be, Jocko. You certainly were. Were, Timothy? I nodded. Costell and Huntington have been doing business for over six months. You've only been in on the case for four. Besides that, I smiled. I need you to help me nail down this thing. Well, thanks, he said. I still say you're crazy. I took out the picture of Lorena Dahl and handed it to him. Tonight, I said, this dame was ready to spill what she knew. And I think she knew who it is I'm looking for. But my price wasn't high enough. She went home to telephone somebody. Maybe THE somebody. She was also supposed to call me back. I hope she has, even though I wasn't there. I hope that whoever it is she's trying to blackmail about these pictures won't do business with her. Jocko looked thoughtful. It could have been Castell, he said. No, Lorena doesn't have much sense, but she's been around long enough to know you don't shake down Rocky Castell. Or didn't. Jocko, I asked, who would have hired her as a stenographer? Huntington, he said, surprised. He didn't. Who else? Well, they don't have an out-and-out personnel man. One of Mary's side jobs is to take charge of the secretarial help. I frowned. Mary and these pictures don't ring a bell. For God's sake, Timothy, don't look at me like that. He was swallowing hard. I like girls as well as the next man, but I like them in all three dimensions. In three dimensions, like that little redhead we just left. That leaves Forbes, I said. Forbes? Jocko almost choked on his drink. That harmless old man. Holy Toledo, you're living in a dream world all your own. He put his hand out and laid it over my arm. Listen, he said. The girls are probably still up. Let's rustle up a quart of this stuff from your friend here and go back and have a little party. I haven't had a party with someone like Jean in years. I, Forbes, I said again. That's what I want you to help me with. If I'm right, Jocko, the fee you got in my 2000 are going to be just so much chicken feed. How's that? He looked like a partner in an agency now. We split whatever we get, I said. If I'm right, you take home half to Chicago. You can buy Fred out. Oh, I wouldn't do that, Timothy. After all, Fred was good enough to take me in. I wouldn't even suggest... Let's hear your idea, he finished suspiciously. I gave it to him in detail. Then I got up and called Hal Harper. I told Hal the pros and the cons. It's strictly for the robo-boys, he said. It may turn that Huntington suicide into something else, I reminded him. When do you want to pick up the stuff, Tim? We were at Center Street Police Headquarters in 20 minutes. Ten more, and we had the portable wire recorder, the clamps, and the rolls of extension wire. The cab started up again and took us further down to the Oceanic Building. A sleepy-looking night watchman examined Jocko's pass and took us up to the 43rd floor. We told him not to wait, that we were going to be busy for a while. We were. It took Jocko an hour and a half to make the tap in, and to make it look good. We tested it for 30 minutes more. 
It was four o'clock when I was finally back in my room on 53rd. When I dropped Jocko off, he hadn't looked happy at all. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 of The Perfect Frame by William Ard This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker Chapter 17 They had Lorena Dahl on the front page of the morning news. It was Lorena's long black hair and her slender waist and her beautiful legs, and she was in a negligee. She was lying on Madison Avenue, and there was an ambulance off to the side of the five-column cut, but the ambulance wasn't necessary because Lorena Dahl was dead. There were a few people standing around helplessly, and cops. The cops were staring into the camera, and if there was any expression on their faces, it was puzzlement. The caption was 72 points high in funereal black. Beauty and Death Leap, it said. The caption told who she was and said she came from Los Angeles, California. It went on to say that she had been private secretary to Walter Huntington, who had killed himself in a similar leap the day before. According to police, said the paper, Miss Dahl and Huntington had apparently shared an illicit love affair. Huntington, they pointed out, was a married man with a family. His suicide had proved too much for the girl, and she had followed him in death. Other pictures were on page three in the centerfold, the caption concluded. I read the words over and over. I pretended I didn't know the girl and read it neutrally. That made it just as the paper said. Unrequited love. Suicide pact. No way out. But I had eaten dinner last night. And I had told the girl with me that blackmail was dangerous, and she had said, not if it pays. She had also been very sure of herself, and the breasts, which must have been warm then and full of life. I thought of the little hotel around the corner and how she talked like a nymphomaniac. What would it have taken? An hour? Two hours? Two hours out of my life. And how many would it have added to hers if I had gone there and in her passion she had told me what the pictures were for and who they were for? The newspaper was wrong. Lorena Dahl hadn't died for love. She lived for love. But she died for money. For blood money. She died for $300.10. $0.10 cents for a phone call. And death had answered. It was 9.30. Things ought to be brisk and businesslike at Oceanic by now. Every busy little bee in his hive making honey, storing honey, feeding the queen bee all the honey she could want. But there wasn't a queen at Oceanic, just a king. And the king wasn't big and fat, but small and frail and scared of his own thin shadow. A king whose heir apparent had jumped from a window. And Lorena Dahl was a number on a slab at the morgue. Maybe Hal Harper was still studying that body and scratching his head. Maybe. Maybe there weren't the right number of fractures and dislocations. Maybe Hal was looking at Lorena Dahl and thinking of Walter Huntington and remembering what we had talked about. Lorena was dead, and time was wasting. I dialed the number and got put through to Mary. I told her I was coming up to see Mr. Forbes. I'm afraid that isn't possible, Mr. Dane, she said. Why, isn't he there? Mr. Forbes is here, but I don't think he'll talk to you. He had another tragic upset this morning. Secretaries come, I said, and secretaries go. Or was Mr. Forbes particularly fond of Lorena Dahl? "'Beg your pardon?' she said crisply. "'Mr. Forbes hardly knew Miss Dahl. "'It was a terrible thing, her suicide. "'But the upsetting thing to Mr. Forbes "'is the insinuations about the girl and Mr. Huntington. "'Mr. Huntington was like a son to Mr. Forbes.' "'So I've heard it said,' I told her. 
any number of times. But I have to see him anyway. I have something to return to him. Oh, she said, why don't you just deduct your expenses, Mr. Dane, and mail Mr. Forbes a check for the rest? It isn't the retainer, I said. I'm still working on this case. But you said... I said I have something to return to him. What is it? It's quite valuable. I want to give it back to him and collect my reward. You're being quite mysterious, Mary told me. What is this thing? I'll bring it up with me. You can only see Mr. Forbes for a few minutes, she said. Mr. Forbes cannot bear any more irritation or excitement. It'll only take a few minutes, I answered, and hung up. The cab wormed its way downtown at an agonizing pace. Other cabs, thousands and thousands of them, huge buses, aggravating traffic lights, foolhardy pedestrians. Everything ganged up on us to keep me from reaching the Oceanic Building. But then we were there, and I was paying the fare and tipping him. For exactly what, I'll never know. And the elevator was making its familiar climb to the 43rd floor. The girl with the inhaled chest gave me a frightened glance and immediately warned Mary that I was already going through the reception room and on inside. Mary greeted me with a tired smile. You seem to terrify the receptionist, she said. Are you really such a dangerous person, Mr. Dane? I've had my moments, I said. Is he briefed and ready for me? Mr. Forbes knows that you are coming in to see him. I'll announce you. That will be nice, I said, and watched her pick up the little microphone and speak into it. The private detective is here, Mr. Forbes. Then the door swung open and I stepped in and got a surprise. Forbes was not alone in his tremendous office. Sitting uncomfortably in a chair against the wall was a stranger. To me, he was a stranger. What he was to the old man who watched me from behind the desk remained to be learned. "'Be brief, Mr. Dane,' said Forbes. "'This has been a terrible ordeal. I've had quite enough of death in detectives.' I turned to look at the stranger. He was a short, squat man, heavily built through the chest and not fat. His face was square and might have run to jowls if he hadn't kept himself in shape, which he definitely had. It was a face that looks dark with beard five minutes after shaving. If I say Jack Dempsey, you'll know the face. But he was a head shorter than Dempsey and not half so pleasant. If that makes you smile, then you'll know just how unpleasant the stranger who was scowled at me from beady eyes that were sunk deep in his head below black bushy eyebrows. "'Who's this ape?' I asked Forbes. The ape reacted. He grunted. "'You don't know this gentleman,' said Forbes. "'I don't,' I admitted. He isn't Margaret O'Brien, is he? The ape reacted again. The reaction brought him out of his chair, and now he stood at full height. Five-two was my guess, and about three feet of it was in his big iron barrel of a body. Cecil, said Forbes quietly. Cecil. Cecil? What did Cecil make me think of? It made me think of Clarence. Clarence Holbert. How's the bull? I asked the ape. It's you he said in a snarling growl. You're the one. He took a step forward before Forbes stopped him. Cecil, sit down. It stopped him. It stopped me. This was Forbes speaking? The voice he had used on the ape was no timorous pipsqueak. It was a voice with volume and authority and malevolence. Now, Dane, he said to me in the new tone, what is your business? What do you have of mind to return? Speak quickly. Instead of speaking quickly, I reached into my inside coat pocket and took out the packet of prints. Five of them. Sally's stayed in the pocket, but the others I laid on his desk fan-wise. These, I said and watched his face closely. Forbes' head was motionless as he stared at the pictures. In his eyes was grand disbelief and then even grander confusion. 
The head and eyes moved, but not up at me. Without willing it, his glance swerved to one of the paintings on the wall, a still life of apples and pears and a vase. Then he gazed at me. "'What are these things?' he said. "'Those are women. Five beautiful women. They're for sale, Mr. Forbes.' "'Why bring them to me? Why would I be interested?' "'Aren't they yours?' "'Of course not.' I looked disappointed. "'Oh,' I said slowly. "'Well, would you like to buy them? I have the negatives, and I'm going to print them up. Can I make you a set?' "'No! You don't have the negatives! You don't have them!' The authority in his voice had cracked. He was shrill now, out of his mind and crying. "'The hell I don't,' I said. "'They're mine!' He sobbed, sweeping the pictures toward him with his old bony fingers. Mine! I bought them! No one can see them! No one else! The voice that I had heard speak through the pictures on the wall was speaking now. Mary's voice. But it didn't come from the wall. It came from a spot a foot from my right shoulder. And something long and pointed was pressing into my back below the shoulder. I warned you, said the voice, not to make the old man excited. Walk over this way. The gun that was at my back indicated a direction toward the ape. Cecil, Mary said, see if he carries a pistol. The ape slid out of his chair with cat-like ease. The bull, the one in Bellevue, was this one's brother. But little brother moved even slicker. His large hands went over me expertly. Nothing, he told Mary. Could I have him? he asked. This is the one who sent Claire to the hospital. You may have him, said Mary, when we have talked to him. That would make three suicides, I said. Two from the same building in three days. What is that supposed to mean? Mary said. But I looked at Forbes. It means that this is the guy who pushed Walter Huntington out of the window the night before last. The fellow you loved like a son. Take him out of here, said Forbes. Throw him out the window. Who throws me out? I asked. Mary or this ape? I can kill you right now, Mary said. But that wouldn't be as cute as the window business. What did you do to her, Mary? Did you get her to drink until she passed out, or did you hit her on the head? What are you talking about? I'm talking about Lorena Dahl. She died on Madison Avenue last night, or was it early this morning? But she came through a window in her hotel. A woman's hotel, Mary. A man couldn't have come up there to see her. She knew that when I had dinner with her. That's why she wanted to go back there and make her call. She was calling a woman, someone who would come up and see her, and not even be noticed by the desk clerk or the people in the lobby. You were the woman she called. She asked how much it would be worth not to tell about the pictures. She wanted to know how much Forbes would pay for her to keep quiet about the pictures, and the fact that she had been hired because Forbes liked the pictures so much. I whirled to the old man behind the desk. Some picture, wasn't it? A private secretary taking dictation without a stitch on her back. You poor, perverted bastard, I told him. You looked at that picture and you thought it would be good to have the girl around. Actually, have her as a secretary. I didn't, he said. Like hell you didn't. But even that wasn't enough. You send your trained seal out on another dirty job for you. Walter Huntington, the man you loved as you'd loved a son, has to find out who the girl is that Castell photographed. He did locate her, and Mary here hired her as Huntington's secretary. And every day you'd watch her and then come sneaking back in here to slobber over her picture. Take him out, croaked Forbes. Throw him out the window. Mr. Dane, Mary said, you're such a fool. Imagine coming up here to tell us such things and then try to brazen your way through it. 
Nothing's going to happen to me, I told her. She laughed. Of course not. All that's going to happen to you is that you're going to die. Like Huntington? I said. Like that girl last night? Don't kid yourself. Oh, not exactly like them, she said. The only way for you is to disappear. Cecil will see to that. She pointed to the wall near Forbes' desk. That hides a private elevator, she explained. You and Cecil will descend to the sub-basement without a soul being the wiser. Rover boys, Hal Harper had cracked last night. Fantastic. This old man, this nice old lady, knocking off the government for all that money, buying pornography, having people killed. Now she held a gun in her motherly hand and was sounding off about secret elevators and sub-basements. Anytime Cecil wants to start, I said, is all right with me, but I'm going to give him a little more trouble than he had with Huntington. If I shoot him, Mary said dispassionately, it may be heard. That will bring the dreadful police again. Cecil will throw him out the window, said the old man with the one-track mind. Make him unconscious, Cecil. Throw him out the window, like Walter. And then you can go down and start another fire, I told the ape, who was on his feet now and looking me over with a weird smile. Maybe Mr. Forbes has another warehouse you can burn down. Who told you about the fire? Mary asked. Why do you think anybody had to be told? The deal you've been working is all pegged out. Huntington was the fall guy all down the line. He didn't figure out the tax deal, but he was the sucker who had to carry the ball for it. Then Forbes got tired of the regular smut he was getting, so Walter had to front for that deal, too. Then I came into it, via Castell. You had no idea Jocko Robinson was smelling you out, but you knew I had to be handled. The first thousand you paid me was to keep me away from the cops. That gave you time to get rid of Huntington. Then Cecil puts a torch to the warehouse, and that should close me out tight. But I showed up the very next day, so you come through with another thousand. That was a big mistake. I'm just a poor working stiff. Two thousand dollars is a lot of money to me. And for what? For nothing? It was screwy, and my nose started twitching. Stop all this drivel, yelled Forbes. Stop this ridiculous talk. What did you come here for, Dane? More money? You fool. You walk in here looking for more money, and what you'll get is the end of your life. Like Walter. Like that silly girl who threatened Mary last night. Like everyone and anyone who is useless to me. He was puffing like a bantam cock. Of course it was Walter who changed the stamps. Who did you expect would do it? Mary? Myself? Someone had to, so Walter did. Walter! The fool actually thought he was going to inherit this business someday. Mary's voice soothed him. Don't get overexcited, Franklin, she said. I'm all right, dear. Oh, if it hadn't been for that scheming girl, that Lorena. No, I said. If you're looking to find out what happened this week, why it all blew up in your face, then blame yourself. Blame your greed, old man. If you'd been satisfied with less, you might have gone on fooling that treasury forever. And if you'd stuck to your deal with Rocky Castell, he'd have never gotten curious about Walter Huntington. Forbes sniffed at me and spread the five pictures on his desk. There's one missing, he announced half gleefully. The best of the lot. You didn't get that one. His face leered at me, senile and obscene. I didn't want any more when I had her. I have the blonde, I said, patting my inside pocket. His eyes traveled to the wall painting again. I shook my head. They're not in there, I lied. I broke in last night and took them all. You're lying to my brother, Mary cried. Your brother? I peered at her, unable to see any resemblance. What do you do with your share? Retouch pictures of Alan Ladd? 
The old man had come to his feet as I spoke, and now he ran toward the painting. It swung upward under the pressure of his hand, revealing the safe. He whirled the combination feverishly. Its small door swung open, and so did the big door behind us. Jocko came through that, along with Hal Harper and a young, uniformed cop. Mary made a strangling noise in her throat and pointed the gun toward her breast. My wrist deflected it, and the shell exploded at the ceiling. Before she could try again, I snapped it from her fingers. Harper was busily barking orders to the confused roomful, and I took a chance at reaching inside the safe. My hand came back with the negatives and a piece of paper crowded with numbers. Then everybody went uptown to police headquarters. It took an hour to book Forbes, Mary, and Cecil on all the counts that Jocko, Harper, and I had to explain to the open-mouthed assistant D.A. But then it was done, and Jocko and I left while Hal stayed behind to play the wire recordings for his boss. None of it, we knew, would amount to a damn as court evidence. It wasn't even worth an indictment. But it was enough to give the police and the revenue department a lead on what they could squeeze out of this trio. The next stop was the Treasury Office in the Woolworth Building. There, I turned over the numbered list, which carried the code names of the banks and the deposit boxes where the stolen tax money was stashed. It was when I had the agent's receipt in my hand that I finally stopped feeling like a shill. I've called myself a shill. I said I was taken for a ride by a blue-eyed blonde who didn't even give me her right name. Well, I was taken for two rides. The second ride was by train to an unheard-of place miles beyond even Montpelier, Vermont. It isn't even a town, just a half-hearted collection of stores that run alongside the railroad station. You walk a hundred yards from this town and you're in a deep, cool woods. We're a thousand yards beyond that, in a cabin that hangs out over the river and is surrounded by silence. The cabin looks rugged from the outside, but the inside is quite a surprise, even for a city boy. Oh, that agent from the Treasury Department. He said I was entitled to 10% of all the money they find in Forbes safety deposit vaults. It'll come to, he said, about $15,000. I'll believe that when they send me the check. End of The Perfect Frame by William Ard